Before we read the text, I want to just give a word about the context of Jeremiah 31:15. I want to talk just a little bit about the history, the literary, where it appears in the book of Jeremiah, and then something about the overall themes that it's dealing with. But my word about the history is very brief. Jeremiah is talking about events that happen around 586 B.C., when Jerusalem is sacked, destroyed, and many, many Israelites are led out of Jerusalem on their way, a trail of tears sort of experience to Babylon, where they will live for 70 years. Uh, If you want more on the history of the prophets in general, I really do commend the last two sermons given here. I think we have them in audio and video Uh, Sermons on Micah and Hosea by Dan and Joshua. Very good. I don't want to bog us down too much with that. Did you know that Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible by sheer word count? Most people think it's Psalms. It's not. It's actually the book of Jeremiah. It is super long. But with his own emphases, of course, he reiterates many of the points made by the prophets before him. Prophets like Isaiah Hosea, Micah, and so on. Although he's known as the weeping prophet, he had much to say about the consolation or the comfort of Israel. In fact, though we can't go into the details of the structure of this book this morning, Jeremiah 30 to 33, four whole chapters, work as the centerpiece of this whole book. In fact, this section of the book of Jeremiah is known as the book of consolation, for it is introduced as a book in chapter 30, verse 2, and its content is packed with oracles of comfort and consolation for God's people. In fact, out of these entire four chapters, only our text today uses the word lamentation, and the word weeping occurs a total of four times in, this, in, in these four chapters. And yes, three of them are used in our ch- text today. Otherwise, the weeping and lamenting appear elsewhere in Jeremiah's book, not in these chapters. These chapters constitute the book of consolation and detail the restoration and reunification of Israel after the exile so, so we need to balance Rachel's weeping with the overwhelming message of consolation, okay, in these four chapters. Now, in terms of theology, biblical theology, I need to make just two comments about the return from exile in the book of Jeremiah, which I won't be able to explain fully this morning. First, in the book of Consolation, as we will see in a moment, Jeremiah talks about the restoration of Israel and Judah by returning them from the nations in which, that, in which God scattered them. But Jeremiah also includes the nations in his description of the return from exile. Write down and consider the following passages this week at home. Jeremiah 1, 5, and 10 so very beginning of the book, indicate that Jeremiah is a prophet over nations and kingdoms. Thus, what he says will have implications for all nations. That's the very beginning of the book. Did you know in Jeremiah 4, 1 to 2, these verses teach that if Israel is faithful to the Lord, 
that the nations will bless themselves in the Lord. This appears to be an allusion back to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12. Remember that, where God promises to Abraham and his offspring that all the nations of the world will be blessed in you, Abraham? Remember that? Jeremiah seems to allude to this in chapter 4, 1 to 2. If Israel is faithful, the nations will come to Yahweh and bless themselves in Yahweh, or in the Lord. Sorry, Yahweh is a reflex with me. In the Lord. Uh, Jeremiah 12, 14 to 15, teach that Judah and all her wicked neighbors, so Egyptians, Assyrians, Babylonians, Edomites, Arameans, the whole gang, will be uprooted or sent into exile. So Judah and her wicked nations, neighbors, will be uprooted and sent into exile. But verse 15 of chapter 12 of Jeremiah teaches that the Lord will bring each of these peoples back to their own inheritance and land. Thus, this passage teaches that the nations may become worshipers of the Lord and may be established in the midst of the renewed people of God, but it goes one step further and it affirms that the nations will also undergo a return from exile just as Israel and Judah Finally, Jeremiah 3.17 says this, At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. This is great news for us. Even the nations will undergo the heart change that Jeremiah speaks so much about. Thus, when Jeremiah talks about the new covenant with the united house of Israel, he also includes members of those nations who will return from their own exiles to join themselves to the Lord, to share in His blessing and to glory in Him. And brothers and sisters, this is the good news for us. Our second theological context to remember when considering the return from exile is that the Old Testament describes return from exile in two phases. One, it very clearly talks about a physical return to the land. The people are going to go to Babylon, and after 70 years, Jeremiah says in chapter 25, after 70 years, the people are going to return to the land. We have the account. Go read Ezra and Nehemiah. It happens. It happens. 70 years later, the people return from Babylon. But little less known and not much talked about, I think the Old Testament describes a spiritual return from exile after a much longer time by which the people are freed from sin and death and are given new hearts to love and serve God. See Isaiah 40 to 55, Daniel's vision of the 70 weeks in Daniel 9. You see, it only took 70 years to get the people out of Babylon, but it took a much longer time to get Babylon out of the hearts of the people. And this was all predicted. Read Isaiah 48. When the people return to the land, it's not an optimistic scene. There shall be no peace for the wicked is the very last verse of Isaiah 48. A chapter that details the physical return of Israel, they're still described as wicked with no peace. 
Furthermore, read the book of Nehemiah all the way through. It doesn't end positively. In fact, Israel looks just like they did before they went into exile, even after the 70-year period. Okay, so all that to say that when Jeremiah describes return from exile, restoration of Israel, he includes the nations, and I think he's talking about both returns, and I'm going to try to draw that out for you. But I'm going to read our text in some fullness here, Jeremiah 31, 15 and following. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Yes, I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me, he said, and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. And after I had turned away, I relented. And after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Set up road markers for yourself. Make yourself guideposts. Consider well the highway, the road by which you went. Return, O virgin Israel. Return to these your cities. How long will you waver, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing on the earth. A woman encircles a man. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, once more they shall use these words in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O habitation of righteousness, O holy hill, and Judah and all its cities shall dwell there together, and the farmers of those who wander with their flocks. For I will satisfy the weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish." At this, I awoke and looked, and my sleep was pleasant to me. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord." In those days, they shall no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And we have to cut it off there. The big idea here is that Rachel weeps for her children who have gone into exile, but the prophet calls for all weeping to cease because after their discipline is complete, God will restore the remnant of Israel as a new creation, righteous and devoted. And Jesus' birth narrative fulfills these events, according to Matthew. One more time, Rachel weeps for her children who have gone into exile, but the prophet calls for all weeping to cease because after their discipline is complete, God will restore the remnant of Israel as a new creation, righteous and devoted. And Jesus' birth narrative fulfills these events, according to Matthew. So, back to verse 15 of chapter 31, Rachel's weeping. First, who is Rachel? And second, from where is she weeping? Well, there can be no doubt that here, Jeremiah refers to the second wife of Jacob, who worked seven years for his uncle Laban, for his first wife, Leah, and then seven more for his second wife, Rachel. You can read about these escapades in Genesis 28 to 35. It's not a dull read. Those chapters report many things, okay? But most important is that God was building a nation through the wombs of Leah, Rachel, and their maidservants, 12 sons and one daughter in all. So established was the fact that these women built the nation that many years later, the people of Israel can still chant this blessing over Ruth, okay? In in the book of Ruth 4.11, this is what the people say. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, quote, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman, Ruth, who is coming into your house, Naomi, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Man, that's quite a testimony, right? Yeah. Rachel is a matriarch, right, of Israel. And here in our verse, her children are all gone. Second, in Genesis 35, 16 to 18, we learn of Rachel's death somewhere between the towns of Bethel and Ephrath, which would later be called Bethlehem. These towns are about 15 miles apart from each other, with Jerusalem roughly halfway in between, and Ramah, or Rama is slightly to the north of Jerusalem. Jacob had just left Bethel and was heading south to Ephrath when Rachel went into fierce labor and died. There was a grave and a monument to her, but we have no clue where that grave site is at present. There are many guesses. I won't bore you with them now. Ramah is to the south of Bethel as well. But Jeremiah does not say that Rachel was buried there in Ramah. She certainly would have gone through Ramah 
on her last journey south. Matthew, as we'll see in a moment, connects this event to Bethlehem. And it's possible that Rachel's tomb is closer to Bethlehem, but the exact location, again, is not really the reason why Jeremiah has her voice coming from Ramah. The more important detail for understanding our passage is that Ramah, or Ramah, was a staging site for shipping out the exiles to Babylon. We see this very clearly in Jeremiah 40, verse 1. The text says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah, when he took him bound in chains, along with all the captives of Jerusalem and Judah who were being exiled to Babylon. Rama is like, a, 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 <laughs> it's a human trafficking site. Can I put it that way? Except it's not hidden. It's out in the open for all to see. These people, we actually see this in Assyrian and Babylonian artwork, they are chained and they are lined up And they are walking, weeping and lamenting as they go from their homes, from all that they know. They are being deported, completely removed from what is familiar and what is uh, their home. Remember here, given that detail... Unless you were Hidalgo, you know that movie, Hidalgo? This always lands flat. I don't know why I keep doing it. It's self-deprecating, honestly. <laughs> it was not a good movie. It's Viggo Mortensen's second movie, right? We all know him as, who do we know him as? Aragorn, thank you. Yes, Hidalgo, no, no, I know. This is <laughs> not a good movie. But, but if those of you who did kind of see it, you don't have to raise your hands. Those of you who did see it, Uh, you know that this horse race is a dash across the Arabian desert. And you know that from the movie, this is right, nobody does that, right? You have to be crazy to do that. Well, that actually helps supply a lot of knowledge and information for how to understand these passages. Jeremiah constantly talks about the enemy coming from the north. But if you know a little bit about that area's geography, you'll know that Iraq, modern-day Iraq, which is where Babylon was, is directly to the east. But nobody goes east because you've got to go across the Arabian Desert. Everybody goes north until they hit the Euphrates River, and then they walk it straight southeast to the city of Babylon. So for the people to go up to Ramah, that's a, start, that's a staging area for them to continue going north to the Euphrates and then off to Babylon. Rachel is weeping bitterly for her children who have all gone into exile. As the matriarch of the nation who died and was buried somewhere along that same route to exile, Jeremiah describes the sorrow and bitter weeping of the nation through the voice and teary eyes of its mother. She refuses to be comforted, for her children are no more. That is, they went into exile. Now, why the exile? We have to pause here. Before we turn to the next section of verses 16 to 22, which is good news, by the way, we have to stop and ask, why the exile? 
We need to review why Israel and Judah went into exile because, brothers and sisters in the faith, this is our bleak history. Because Christ is our king and he has descended from Israel, you see, his history becomes ours. In Israel, we can see the depths of our treacherous sin in their covenantal unfaithfulness. And also in Israel, we can see our great need for a righteous and holy Messiah who would succeed in fulfilling all righteousness where Israel and her kings previously failed. So very simply put, Israel went into exile because they failed to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and utmost. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. They were not loyal to the Lord, and they did not worship Him only. Like Adam before them, they failed to worship God only and sought to de-God God. That is, they sought to put themselves in that place. Failure to be loyal to the Lord alone, you see, opened the door for Israel to worship the other gods of the Canaanites. And this is the very treacherous thing they did. This morning, I can't even read to you how Jeremiah describes Israel's adulteries among the gods of the nations in chapter 3, or Ezekiel's description of Israel's and Judah's abominations in Ezekiel 16. But brothers and sisters, their disloyalty and their unfaithfulness to the Lord did not end with just worshiping other gods. That was only the treacherous beginning which led them to mistreat, oppress, and to harm one another. Jeremiah 7 puts it this way. Speaking Again, Jeremiah speaking to Israel. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place... And if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I'll let you dwell in this place, in the land which I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you, Israel, trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, Jeremiah is standing in front of the temple, and then come before me and stand in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we're, we're delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. The Lord and Jeremiah are like, no, that's not what's going to happen. But did you see that description, that dirty laundry list? Where did they just come up with the ideas to start mistreating everybody? I mean, it's natural, and we're going to get to that in a moment, but, but it's fascinating. As soon as you remove soul worship, soul loyalty, faithfulness to the Lord, as long as that's an option, I can treat you however I want to now. And that's, that's all of Israel's history. Remove Yahweh and soul allegiance to him and loyalty to him and faithfulness to him. Substitute the Canaanite gods, which, by the way, built into their exact religion oppressions and injustices from the get-go. So it's no wonder, once you leave the Lord behind, you're going to start to mistreat others. 
This is why the first and greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and utmost, right? That's first. Then love your neighbor as yourself. But as soon as you remove the first, you'll never do the second. And that's the whole history of Israel. You'll never do the second. But brothers and sisters, the depth of Israel's sin has still not been exhausted. Why were they unfaithful to the Lord? And why did they mistreat one another? Why do we? We need to ask this question. Using Israel as a bit of a mirror. Why do we do this? Jeremiah plums the depths of our sinful condition in Jeremiah 17, 9, when he says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The Hebrew term translated as desperately sick might be better rendered as incurable in the sense of an incurable wound or a deadly wound. We see this in its other uses in Jeremiah, where Israel's wounds and pains are said to be without cure. Therefore, the heart, you see, the control center of our entire being, has a spiritually incurable wound. The heart, again, this is often, you guys are thinking, well, you're describing the mind. No, I'm not. I'm describing the heart. The heart is actually where you think, according to the Old Testament. This is where you think. It's also where you feel. It's also where you wish and dream. The heart truly is the control center of the human being. And for Jeremiah to say that it is incurably ill is a devastating statement because that means we're all in trouble. Add to that the eight times that Jeremiah describes the people's heart as stubborn or rebellious towards the Lord and his ways. And we can then begin to put the picture together. Israel had a heart with an incurable wound, one that caused them to worship other gods and to treat one another in unjust and oppressive and exploitative ways. This is the exact opposite for what we were created, right? Which was to worship God, right? Treat one another rightly and to steward the creation. But the fall of man corrupted everything. And now humanity has an internal heart problem, an incurable wound in its heart. And brothers and sisters, if we take a good look at ourselves in the mirror of the Scriptures we know that we have the same heart. Our heart is incurably rebellious to the ways of the Lord. We desire to worship the gods after our own making, the gods of stone and wood, the gods of the internet, the gods of the bank, right? You name them. They're there. What we need is a righteous Davidic Messiah to represent us. Christmas is coming, but we're not there yet. From the beginning, Israel was warned of the curses of exile that would come for unfaithfulness. Moses says this in Deuteronomy 28, and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no rest 
and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. How many of you picked up on the fact that there won't be languishing souls in Jeremiah 31? But here in Deuteronomy 28, God is going to give you trembling hearts, failing eyes, and a languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. Do we get a little bit of a better idea of why Rachel is weeping for her children? That's not a happy, it's not a happy description in Deuteronomy 28. The bleak situation that Adam and later Israel created might best be described in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe on the lips of Mr. Tumnus the Fawn when he says, It is winter in Narnia, and it has been forever so long. And a little later, when identifying the white witch, he adds, Why, it is she that has got all Narnia under her thumb. It's she that makes it always winter. Always winter and never Christmas. Think of that. Or how the hymn writer Charles Wesley describes humanity. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Or another hymn, the one we sang this morning. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Yes, Rachel's lament and weeping were bitter. Her children had incurably wounded, stubborn hearts that led them to adulteries with other gods of stone and wood and to unjust and exploitative relationships with one another. But like the exile itself, Rachel's tears would not be the last word of this oracle. And now I want to move to verses 16 to 22, where here we have an encouragement to restrain weeping, okay? Remember, the whole four chapters, there's nothing about weeping except for in verses 15 and 16, where it's even being said, don't do this. Stop doing this. Jeremiah here encourages Rachel to restrain her voice from weeping, and her eyes from tears. In verses 16 and 17, the Lord promises that the children will return from the land of the enemy, which is Babylon, right? That's the land of the north. They will return from the northern territory. Verse 17 tells of a hope for the future. They will return to their territories, but Jeremiah has hardly begun to lay out the details of how they will return. Verses 18 to 20 interprets the exile in terms of discipline for Ephraim, one of Joseph's two sons, and a representative of the ten northern tribes. Ephraim, the text says, pities himself as he recounts the Lord's discipline in the exile. In Jeremiah 7.28, it says, And you shall say to them, Jeremiah, Say to the people, this is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord, their God, and catch this, and did not accept discipline. Truth has perished. It is cut off from their lips. 
But notice here now in Jeremiah 31, 18 through 20, that the discipline took this time. How many of you are parents? Yeah, and you just know like, wow, it worked. <laughs> Something happened. There was a switch flipped. Something happened. And uh, we, like to take the bl- we like to take the credit for that. Maybe we shouldn't. But, but, but here in Jeremiah, Israel constantly refuses discipline. They don't accept it. The truth's perished. But here, look what Ephraim says in verse 19. No, 18. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined. Like an untrained calf, bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. Now catch 19. For after I had turned away, I relented. I gave up my, I gave up my fight. I gave up my rebellion. And after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I know that's a hard kind of image to uh, gather, but basically he's, he, uh, he acknowledges or he abhors the thing that he was doing by this, by this act of striking his own thigh. Notice he owns, I was ashamed and I was confounded. Even I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. But see, that's a total change of perspective for Ephraim. Because all of Israel and Judah to this point are not owning anything. They're hell-bent. There is no shame in their eyes. They are constantly driving at rebellion against the Lord. That's what they're doing. But here, this is a change of heart, isn't it? He actually can wake up and see, the exile disciplined me. Fascinating. He slapped himself on the thigh, which is a sign of his grief and his abhorrence of wrongdoing. He was ashamed and even confounded, for he bore the disgrace of his youth. The Lord then confirms that Ephraim is a precious son of his, and that he will surely remember him and have compassion on him again. But once again, the details of such compassion and return are forthcoming. They're not really here in our passage. In Jeremiah 30, verse 11 This discipline is interpreted as just punishment for the people. Again, the Lord says, For I'm with you to save you, declares the Lord. I will make a full end of all the nations among whom I scattered you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. That's both comforting and not, right, at the same time. That's going to be a strict discipline. In fact, earlier in the book, Jeremiah has already said that the Lord will mete out just and equal punishment for Israel's crimes. He said this in 1618. But first, I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they have polluted my land with the carcasses of their detestable idols and have filled my inheritance with their abominations. The text says then that their punishment will fit exactly the crimes committed, as was the basis for the entire law of the Old Testament, right? Eye for eye, life for life, tooth for tooth, stripe for stripe. All of Israel's crimes against the Lord and one another will be meted out in this exile. But again, this is... This is not interpret the exile is not interpreted as the end. It is a discipline, a, a, a way in which 
Israel will be saved and brought into right covenantal relationship with God. More to say on that. But verses 21 and 22 end our section. Come home is the message. Come home. The Lord creates a new thing. In the final verses here, the Lord instructs Ephraim to set up road markers and to make signposts for themselves and to set their heart on the path that they took into exile. Well, why? Because they will come home the same way. They went out from the north, towards the north, and they will come back the same route. They will return to the land. The Lord says he will create a new thing in the land. That new thing seems to be this proverb, a woman encircles a man. Talk about your difficult text for Christmas morning. What does that even mean? I didn't get any help on this one. <laughs> so, but I will give you my two cents, and I think it will make sense in the context here. In the text, the Hebrew word for woman is actually the word for female, okay? But the word for man in this text is not actually the word for male, okay? If you're looking at the Hebrew text. The word for woman means female. The word for man in our text means something like a strong man, really related to a warrior type. Does that make sense? Okay. So, so I just want to put it to rest right now. This verse is not advocating for the reversal of male and female roles. Okay, that's not what's going on here at all, actually. Rather, the picture painted is that whatever new thing the Lord creates on the earth, it will allow for a woman to encircle or protect a strong man because the world is already safe and secure. In other words, the proverb that a a woman encircles a strong man, the proverb assumes that a female could not protect a strong man if the conditions were less than already safe and secure. But this proverb does graphically portray how completely secure the Lord's new creation will be. Does that make sense? So a summary. Rachel weeps over the exile, but she's encouraged to cease because through the exile, the Lord will discipline Ephraim. And the discipline will have a good effect. He will respond as the Son of God should respond to his Father. But if we step back now and look at the larger context that I laid out previously, we'll see that Ephraim does not respond to the Lord's discipline 70 years later. Israel was not instructed. Israel did not relent of rebellion. He was still the untrained calf 70 years after the exile. Rather, those realities would be true in the lives of the remnant of Israel and the nations who would respond to Messiah Jesus' call to follow him, you see, and to become his disciples. And this truth is borne out in the very next section. Very quickly, verses 23 to 26 are now an oracle about Judah. Okay? A quick oracle about Judah. And basically, there's going to come a day 
when Judah will again be called a righteous habitation, a holy hill. Well, did that happen after 70 years of exile? Who's the, ma- who's the king in Matthew 2? Is it looking like a righteous habitation? A holy hill at the point where Herod is king? Is it looking that way even with the so-called Hasmonians and Maccabeans for 400 plus years? I'll just, ch- I'll just jump right to it. No, it's not. It's not looking like any of that. When will Jerusalem and Judah be called a righteous habitation and a holy hill? Only those disciples of Jesus, Hebrews 12 teaches. When we come to him, we become, you see, part of the city of God, fully devoted to the righteous service of God himself. But Israel and Judah were not the city of God when they returned from Babylon. That spiritual return from exile was still waiting for its fulfillment in the new covenant, to which we now briefly turn. The new covenant, very quickly, it addresses Israel and Judah. Why? Because Israel was the first or the original party at Mount Sinai when a covenant was made there. But as we have already seen, this new covenant with its forgiveness of sins will include exiles from the nations as well. Furthermore, at the institution of the Lord's Supper, Jesus makes very clear in Luke 22 that the cup, right, that he lifts is the new covenant in his blood, which is poured out for you. But who's the you? It's poured out for his disciples and all those whom they would make disciples, you see. That is, the new covenant, right, is not even for all Jews, but it's only for all the disciples of Jesus, for every soul that listens to the prophet to come, Peter says in Acts 3.23. And look at the very next few chapters. Who accepts discipleship but the Samaritans and the Ethiopian eunuch, right? That's a working out of the new covenant amongst foreigners and eunuchs, just like Isaiah in chapter 56 said it would happen. Now, Herod's killing of the infants. This is tough on Christmas. Even after all we've said, Rachel's weeping, and, and, and yet in a context of consolation and great comfort, This was still hard to read this week, and it's even harder to preach. But as if we needed more evidence for the lack of spiritual return from exile, Herod provides all the evidence we need that it's business as usual in Israel. A king who knows not God or his word is serving himself and mercilessly killing the people put under his charge. This sounds no different than most of the kings in Israel and Judah. Certainly, it's no different than the Pharaoh, right, who did this very thing to the Israelites or the Hebrews in Goshen, right, at the time of the actual exodus. 
Herod is satanic here. This is hard, especially for Christmas, it seems. Indeed, Ephraim and Judah, though, have not responded to the Lord's discipline in the exile, nor have they experienced the new covenant's consolation of the exodus from the darkness of their own sinful hearts. They are not yet the habitation of righteousness and the holy hill. It's always winter and never Christmas under the reigns of Herod and his ilk. But that's all about to change. In this event, Matthew says that Jeremiah's word about Rachel's weeping and the people's return from exile has been fulfilled. That is, Matthew wants us to continue to see that in the Messiah Jesus and the events of his life, the new and true Israel is actually returning from exile and undergoing the new exodus out of sin and death and entering into the new creation consolation described so thickly in Jeremiah 30 to 33. In all these events, Christ Jesus, King Jesus, fulfills Israel's history. Yes, the people return to the land, but no, they had not ultimately returned, and the new covenant was still to be inaugurated, and its forgiveness of sins was still to be accomplished in the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus. Herod's killing of the infants is an atrocity that still causes pain to those of us who read it. It was a great evil. But like the exile and Rachel's weeping over her children, it's darkest before the dawn. It's coldest and bleakest before the sun rises. The battle is fiercest before it's won. In this atrocity surrounding the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem and his flight into Egypt, God in his Messiah shows us that the new era, the new age, and the new covenant are all about to dawn. Rachel and the mothers of Bethlehem weep bitterly, but soon their tears will be wiped away. They will stop their voice from weeping and their eyes from tears. The new Israel in Christ will receive discipline and will have the law or the Torah written on their hearts and all of their sins will be forgiven and the Lord will remember them no more. Christmas has finally dawned. Permit me to quote C.S. Lewis is the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe once more. This time, Mr. Beaver, right? He's fielded the ultimate question of the, of the children. Who is Aslan? Right. Who is Aslan? It's a beautiful chapter in the book. Mr. Beaver doesn't hesitate. He's the king. And then he says, he, Aslan... He'll put all to rights. As it says in an old rhyme in these parts, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. 
When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Beautiful. And again, the full verse from Wesley's hymn, Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. In Christ's own exodus out of Egypt and Rachel's weeping in Herod's slaughter of the infants, God has led us out of sin and death and given us new hearts to love and serve Him. No longer let us groan in slavery to sin. Let us repent and follow Christ out of Egypt and into pure consolation and the restoration of all things in the new creation. We have time for just a couple of applications. To the church, brothers and sisters, Christmas dawned in a stable over 2,000 years ago. And with the first coming of the Messiah, the new covenant, and the return from exile from the darkness of our sinful hearts was inaugurated. Our sins are forgiven in Christ. Our fears no longer enslave us. God's Torah, His law, is written on our hearts so that we all know the Lord. And by grace, we follow His ways and keep His commands. The New Testament makes abundantly clear that it's God in Christ who has brought all of it about. Second, we are still called exiles and strangers in this world, according to 1 Peter. According to Hebrews... We do not yet see all things under Christ's feet, but we see Jesus. That is, we live between the times of Christ's first and second comings. And as a result, we still experience great loss in this life. We grieve and mourn, as Rachel did over her exiled children, even as our tears and sorrows have and will continue to give way to joy and consolation inexpressible. Because of Christ's own resurrection in the past, we grieve as those who have hope for the future resurrection. Christ has conquered death. We are right with God. And these truths should bring us great comfort and joy today. Lastly, if you're visiting with us this morning and you feel you are still in the dark, wintry night of sin and in fear of death, let me encourage you to cling to Christ Jesus, the hope of all people, and to trust Him for salvation. Confess that He's Lord and that you've been living in rebellion to Him. Like He says to Ephraim, He says to the one who will confess his sin, His very heart yearns. For his people, and he will surely have mercy on the one who repents of his sin. Please talk to one of us sitting around you today if you would like to leave the exile of sin and death and come into the kingdom of light and truth. Amen.